Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast. I'm Steve Clear. We've got an awesome show for you today. Joining me today is David Cisneros. David is a recovering attorney, saw the light and moved from litigation to the food business starting with the co-founding of WES, that's Western Export Services. With many years of experience in building brands, he also decided to recently co-found Origo Brands and three great products, Chantico Aguave, Avenidas Cafe, and Monstruo Tequila Barbecue Salsa. I know I'm close. I'm close You're close. Me. You're definitely Good job. They're all new ways of looking at Hispanic brands, authentic from origin, but very premium tasting and even healthier to boot. We got to cover a lot of territory today, so let's settle in and welcome David. Thank you, I appreciate it, Steve. It's nice to be with you. Thank you uh, so much for for. I, it took us a little while to get to, to to this point. We went back and forth, some vacations. I threw my back out. It's whatever. And you've been doing some fundraising, which we're going to talk about. All of which took up our time, but but we did it. Let's start with because it's not not everybody comes into the food profession from being an attorney. So <laughs> going down a good path, your parents were proud of you. <laughs> well, I actually was a uh, I always wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. So I moved to Atlanta and practiced civil rights law. I was uh, worked for the Martin Luther King Foundation to start and then went into uh, civil rights litigation. First Amendment, Fifth Amendment stuff, and really loved it. But practicing law wasn't all cracked, all it was cracked up to be. And I know I disappointed my parents, but uh, I think I put my legal training to good use in terms of building our company. And, um, you know, the creative part comes from a different part of my brain, but the commercial side is the legal training has been really helpful. And were you kind of a foodie growing up, or did something that came after you were an adult? Well, I was a foodie insofar as we had boys in our family, and we all ate really fast to make sure we got enough. So, <laughs> but in no way was I a foodie. It was more mostly uh, big bowls of spaghetti and, and stuff like that. Um, back then, you know, it was uh, TV dinners and, and and all kinds of things. But I, I started traveling internationally in my twenties, and I lived in Japan for many years. Um, traveled throughout Asia, Europe, Latin America, and you know, started tasting some variations, our primary emphasis on some of the products we actually export, some of the food and beverage is Latin America. So started traveling to Latin America, which I've been doing for 20 years, going everywhere, Mexico, Caribbean, Central America, South America, and tasting foods that I never knew existed. It's not just obviously, you know, Southwestern food or Tex-Mex or Taco Bell or, you know, Mexican food. So once I started learning it, I I got to the place where I was just interested in learning more about and doing more about it. And so in in a sense, uh, on the the export side, so when when people think about export, they think about American products going overseas, but it's also sending other countries' products overseas and, you know, finding some, some different flavors. So from that, experience or whatever, did, did Western Export Services, did it look for particular brands to work with or particular tastes that maybe might work from South America to, let's say, Europe or, or Asia? Absolutely. I mean, our first uh, Hispanic product was Cholula Hot Sauce, and we represent them for over 20 years. They were sold to McCormick's uh, a couple of years ago. 
yep. um, believe it or not, for $800 million. So it shows that Hispanic brands have tremendous potential for acquisition because this market is, the U.S. market is now almost 20% Hispanic. But also there's a love of Anglo people, all Americans, for Hispanic foods. We also handled Grupo Modelo, which was the Corona brand. Sure. We built that to number one in Japan, the number one imported beer. So we've been working with Hispanic and Latin brands for 20, 25 years. Where did the idea to, I guess I'll call it disruptive or whatever, but where did the idea for Origo come from out of all this? It came, I think, in two ways. Number one, it came from the idea that, again, I wanted people to understand that Latin foods are more than just tacos and burritos. There's nothing wrong with traditional Hispanic food. A lot of it is known as Mexican food. But what I just said, you know, is that I've been to a lot of countries. There's Cubano, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Guatemalan foods and beverages that are unique. And I wanted to recognize something that culture always often follows food culture, doesn't it? I mean, what we eat when we go visit places or what we eat at our dinner table or we go out to eat teaches us about the culture that is a part of that. And I wanted people to know that there's a much bigger culture than just Mexican food. The second thing is, again, you know, working with Hispanic or Latin food for all these years, we learned a lot. We went to national sales meetings, international sales meetings, and we learned that there was this tremendous potential for Hispanic foods, both, again, for Anglos and for Hispanics. And that's really what, what drew me to it. As we go back kind of in the, in the big food or packaged foods business, you certainly had Tabasco coming when when the I'm just going to call it hotter, hotter, spicier or whatever. But there was definitely this trend that had started a while back and and kind of kept growing. So it was a different, a slightly different taste profile, a hotter or spicier taste profile for Americans. But did you find that, you know, your stuff grew from the Southwest or from the coasts or where did you begin to see that willingness to to try new things? Well, my family is is from New Mexico. We live in Colorado now, but the Southwest, including Colorado, New Mexico, obviously has a long tradition, hundreds of years of different kinds of Hispanic food. Colorado has green chile. You know, Arizona, New Mexico have red sauce. There's different kinds of cuisine out of California. We wanted to recognize that there are Hispanics, of course, on both sides of the border. Sometimes your tia or your aunt lives in Colorado and somebody lives in Mexico City. So we're culling our ingredients, authentic origin ingredients from different countries like Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, but also New Mexico. One of our barbecue salsas, our Gila barbecue salsas, is actually made with hatch green chili from New Mexico. Love hatch green chili. I do too. I really do. There is. We go to a farmer's market. That there's a vendor there every Saturday, and they've got they're just rolling it. It just you're like just immediately drawn to it. Yeah, I just bought some this last Saturday. I bought some pinions, which I love, and I bought some hatch green chili. I got the mild, but even the mild is hot. So it's just, but it's <laughs> just, there's nothing else quite like it. So we put it in our barbecue salsa, our first variety, which is from New Mexico. David, from the background, so there's people will say. Having been involved in the food business in a third-party service export, whatever, and in in going to different countries could give you an advantage in starting your own line. It could also be a huge disadvantage because you come with a lot of prejudices about how the thing works. But what were the differences so far you've experienced between 
selling elsewhere and actually trying to to take a Hispanic product line into domestic grocery? That's a really good question. I mean, internationally, we're working with importer distributors who handle whole, a whole country. So we have to train them and get them the product and get them the pricing, but they basically manage with us the workings that go on selling to the retailers, promoting within the country. Now we're our own distributor. So in, in addition to creating the brands, we have to work as the, the master distributor with our to KE and UNFI and working with our brokers and working with food service. So we've got to do everything ourselves versus just selling it to somebody else and helping them. Letting them, yeah, push it through. What did you, in, in terms of sitting down, did you think first maybe about another hot sauce or maybe how did you come up with what was going to be the portfolio for the, the new company? Well, first of all, we had connections with all these brands. So for example, because we handled Cholula, which was owned by Jose Cuervo, agave, as you know, 80% of agave goes to the tequila manufacturers to be distilled into tequila. And we're working with the largest vertically integrated partner, uh, agave producing partner in Mexico, in Guadalajara. And they were interested in doing something other than tequila like doing some brand building and doing agave syrup, which has been around for 10,000 years. So we said, let's, you know, let's work on a brand together. For the Gila sauce, for example, I saw the value and the opportunity around Cholula hot sauce, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a little trickery around our brand name because people remember that Gila salsa just means sauce, but it's been lost. Salsa has become kind of a dipping idea but actually salsa just means sauce. So we wanted something that more than maybe hot sauce was a full service kind of product that could be a meat barbecue salsa for traditional Mexican products like carnitas, also for traditional American recipes with chicken, but also would work as a dip, would work you know, as a marinade, would work as a, a mix with other kinds of, of things. For example, making a pizza with barbecue salsa you know, instead of tomato sauce. So there's all kinds of ways that you can put it. I learned from Cholula about the versatility of using a hot sauce, but barbecue sauce is actually a lot more versatile. So that's that's what we were really looking for was I learned about versatility. I learned about the interest in demand for Hispanic Latin foods. And I also learned that there's this great crossover. Like I said, you can find Cholula in some of the nicest restaurants as well as traditional Hispanic restaurants. That's where I want my barbecue sauce and my agave to be. I want it to be in lots of different kinds of restaurants, not just Hispanic restaurants. And I'll guarantee you my, my friends at McCormick's will take the brand name and expand it to several different variations of, of products if I, if I know them well. So oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's going to come. Kind of a keynote on the authenticity, David. So is there an older barbecue salsa it's been around for a while is the you know obviously guave syrup's been around for a long time but how do you balance that sort of i need to do it authentically but i also need to do it under fda regulations and get it in something that'll last for more than two months on the shelf that's another good question because that's really hard as you know you know for example talking about the barbecue salsas our first one we worked with a chef out of arizona actually at the phoenix i think culinary institute he worked with us to design our first uh, hatch green chili. Our second uh, variety is actually from Sonora, and it uses chiltepin peppers, which are called bird peppers. And then our third variety, which we're coming out with in January for the next barbecue, is from Honduras. 
And that one's top secret, but I'll tell you there are some very unique things. And I just tasted it about two weeks ago. It's unlike anything you've ever tasted. I think that's true for all of our salsas. Nobody has tasted these salsas before. So yeah, that's what's really exciting is they're unique. The key ingredients are from the origin. Of course, some some ingredients are because you can't get everything from the origin, but we work really hard to supply these origin core ingredients. Right. And and source source them and support the folks that are that are making them. Again, kind of going back to the the export days and and the bigger business stuff, did you have a sort of that entrepreneurial itch as well as, you know, liking food? I mean, did you, was there somewhere in there where you said, you know, hey, I I really think these are great brands. I've got great partners. This is all good, but I really would like to do something kind of on my own. Absolutely. I mean, I love the brands I work with and we work very hard and we have a whole separate team that uh, at West, Western Export that does that. And then we have an Orgo team that focuses on our brands and definitely saw the opportunity. We had so much experience in selling and marketing, back office, including finance, sales, and distribution. We're not, there's nothing wrong with young people coming up with a new product and, and going out with it, but we're a little bit older and we have a lot of experience on the back office side, which is so important. Yeah. So that's that really helped us to get set up in, but it really was a vision or a dream to do our own things, again, that were Latin food culture to basically, it's a long story, basically, but my family's from the San Luis Valley in Colorado. They moved to Denver. And still, you know, when I was a little boy, there was a lot of discrimination towards Hispanics in, in Colorado. So, you know, there's always been a feeling that there's much more to offer from Hispanic culture than some of the prejudice or challenges that we see. And I want to be a part of that sharing culture with people. In terms of that with, with cultures, one of the things when, when looking through some some cookbooks and watching some documentaries, whatever, this in South America, Central America, Mexico, this mixture of Spanish and indigenous cooking, or you know, in Mexico it's Mayan or whatever. But this idea that there were things brought over by the Spanish that stuck and around and then melded a lot of times with some of the older stuff, which makes it fascinating, great tasting, obviously, but also how the different countries kind of interpreted that Spanish influence into their cooking. There's different different things in, you know, a Paraguayan versus Ecuadorian, for instance, where it's just different. And you you sit down on the menu and you go, Did, were these folks both colonies for a while or what, what happened? I, well, you know, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. Say, how did you sort, sort through that with all those variations available? Well, there's another variation too, as you know, which is that Many indigenous products in the Americas went back to Europe, from tobacco to tomatoes to chocolate. You know, there were quite a variety of different products that were brought back. One of the things we're kind of talking about is that coffee doesn't need lavazza. Chocolate doesn't need, uh, without using a name, any European brand to be premium. It can come directly from the source and be a product. Latin America is not just a breadbasket of supply. And what we're trying to do is make products that are premium. And they're proved that the, the Hispanic products can be just as premium as European or American. Because this, these, these things have gone back and forth. I was watching Stanley Tucci's uh, uh, show on uh, CNN. And he was talking about when all the, the Jews were uh, taken out of Spain, they went to Italy. And they brought tomatoes with them. So that's what makes right. up a lot of Italian culture. The tomatoes brought because of the Inquisition in Spain. Yeah, it's the same thing. I've been I've been watching some documentary stuff about 
the history of India and the fact that a lot of the traders that came from the Arabic countries down into India and then took back these plants and stuff, which most of them couldn't grow in Pakistan or you know whatever. But but son of a gun, I mean they 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 said these flavors are totally different, and they they paid for it in gold, which they had a lot of, and as a result, the Indians got this predilection for jewelry because they had all this gold around. And go, what am I going to do? Trade <laughs> in gold here, we barter, right? So it's like, right. but the food was just they all these strange fruits and you know wonderful things which which they had. So yeah, yeah. that cross cultural thing is like really super important in in uh, creating some of the, the stuff we, we like today. I also think they did a little bit about the coffee business in the in the fact that that you know over the years as the as coffee became much more popular in the United States, you know, in the, in the very early days than tea, that there was this sort of, not to say dumbing down, but this idea that the stuff that ended up being exported and sent here was like the worst of the worst. Like they wouldn't drink that stuff wherever it was raised. If this was, oh my God, just send this stuff, please, if somebody grind it up and use it. And then we've now created this whole super culture of coffee and and then learning about origins and different methods of roasting and and still you know even even Starbucks you know to a certain extent helped to educate the American public that there was more than one cup of coffee so what has been your with the coffee brand the said Avenidas yeah yes so what's the story with Avenidas and how is that different well what you're saying is true and it's kind of what I was saying before the idea is that Ball green was exported of different varieties, and then another name was put on it. Rather, day, years ago, Folgers in terms of uh, instant coffee, and then as we moved uh, our taste of coffee, it's changed from some big brands. Again, I don't need to mention them, but the premiumness came from marketing because the coffee wasn't from those countries, and roasting pro- processing. There's a little bit of difference, but you know it's not significant. The difference between us is we have a, a concept directed to la finca which means direct from the farms. So we want more of the money to go to the farmers and the growers because what happens is when they supply, it's usually bought by brokers who add on 30%. You're not absolutely sure about the fresh freshness or the quality of the product, but we go to Guatemala. We, we're actually been partners with our growers for 15 years. So we know product, what it is. You know, there's nine growing regions in, in Guatemala from different varieties like Weihui, Tenango, Antigua, you know, different flavors, Coban. And so we, our first four flavors are three of those areas and plus a mix uh, that we use and then, you know, expand that. And we'll probably expand to other coffee-growing countries as we go. But the idea is to sell it in two ways. One is we roast and pack it in Guatemala to bring value locally. And if we need a local roast, we bring it to Denver and we roast it here. Okay. That. But it's direct to the roaster. And then that you can do the, you know, you know where it comes from. If there's an issue with it, you know who to go talk to. Yeah. And and again, more of the money, I think, goes to the grower. There's nothing wrong with brokers. They're just trying to make a living. But, you know, you can supply, anybody can buy coffee and put slap a label on it. You know, a lot of young people, they're slapping like really, you know, as as a crazy a name as they can on a coffee to oh, get yes. yeah. the younger we just didn't want to go that way. Avenidas is is means the path in Spanish. So our symbol is the, the Quetz, Quetzal bird, which is an Aztec symbol for the Aztec warriors used to get an Aztec, fe, a, a Quetzal feather 
for hitting the person on the head, not for killing them, but to have the courage to hit them on the head, they get a quetzal feather. And that's why you often see with Aztecs, their their headdresses of quetzal feathers. So we use symbols. Shantiko is the Aztec goddess of home and hearth. And so everything about us is authentic, whether it's our coffee or our Shantiko. And you and I talked a little bit before, too. You're kind of in the middle of doing what every good entrepreneur, food business, food and beverage entrepreneur needs to do, which is fundraising. So you talk a little bit about how you came to the realization, hey, we got to do this and and, uh, how you decided to structure it. Well, we're a new company, right? And it's hard to get money when when you're new. You have to have some proof of concept, which I understand. Um, And right now, money is pretty tight investment because a lot of people perceive the economies not where they want it to be. So we decided to go with equity crowdfunding because it allowed us the opportunity to get some initial funds to get to the second stage, which we believe next year will be in the range of two to three million in sales. Um, our company is, is doing really well. We're in What Chefs Want on the food service side, which is over 16,000 uh, locations where they supply. We also have brokers in the Northeast, California, Arizona, Denver, Midwest, and East that are, because we're in KE and Unify, warehouses we're able to distribute. We're trying to stay focused on smaller chains to build it up, build up the brand and not overextend, but that all costs money. (laughs) And uh, so as we want to scale up, we want to use this initial funds to to get to the next level, like I said, two or three million, and then hopefully perhaps get more capital either through equity crowdfunding or elsewhere to scale up to the next level. I think that's one of the things that, again, going back with, other guests on the program and whatever in, in from a marketing background got to have all the p's and q's together and got to have a great campaign and this is gonna be and and probably because for most of my career my clients were very large companies budget was never an issue so it was you know how are we going to spend it what are we going to do here's the slotting funds here's the the first year promo there was no discussion of oh my god we might not make money on this thing for the first year as a matter of fact, we're probably going to lose money the first year. That was baked in already. And that many entrepreneurs, it's probably the biggest issue. They really don't, A, don't understand the capital intensity of food and beverage. And when they do manage to, let's say, friends and family around, maybe even angel, somebody comes in who's interested, they're not saving the money for what they're really going to need it for. They're, you know, oh, let's change the packaging. Well, okay. You know, it's just, it's a huge, a huge, you remarked that you are trying to focus on smaller and maybe regional stores and whatever is, is that partially because of the money challenge, but also because their clientele may be more receptive to trying a new brand? Both. Yeah, you're right. Both because they are and and because they, you know, just mathematically are lower in costs, upfront costs, listing fees, free product. And we're also focusing a lot on food service because all our products come in gallons or larger sizes. Food service tends to be more, have more net profit. And then we also obviously need to push on our own retail capability, which is, you know, Shopify, because you're getting the retail margin in that. So we've got to push back on margins because on the retail side, you know, there's a, through KE Group, there's definitely some set offs and, and listing fees and things you have to pay. So your net profit is generally going to be lower. Right. Yeah. And volume doesn't always make up for that because... Sometimes it can kill you if you don't have the pricing. Right. Right. The the good news is you're in all 300 Sprout stores. The bad news is you're in all 300 Sprout (laughs) stores. It's like, 
You don't know how many how many entrepreneurs I've talked to in getting started who had to quit because they got to two million. One guy I know got to ten million in sales, had a great product, but the big players came in and, and outspent him and and you know, at 10 million, he couldn't go any further. So it's a little bit like the yellow brick road, right? Uh, you know, you have to be careful. And that's why a lot of, I think, entrepreneurs struggle. Again, I think what helps us is not only our legal background, but our business background. We know what it takes to, and it's not a perfect thing, as you know, Steve, but I think we know better than most how to spend our money wisely in the short term. Yeah, and, and grow. Did When you were looking at the Orego brands to begin with, did you look at categories and go, I want to find some white space here? Did you look at your best connections because you knew a guy who was going to Guave forever? How did you sort out what you really wanted to launch? Well, a couple of things. I, I like being disruptive because I, I think being disruptive is valuable to people, but not just disruptive for disruptive sake, also to bring tell a story and bring a story. So, for example, agave, when I saw agave, I saw that there were natural sweeteners, for example, that don't taste very good, like stevia. And there was an opportunity for natural sweeteners. So, for example, you know, agave has been around for 10,000 years. It's all natural. It's lowest GI of all natural and sweet of all sweeteners. It's got the lowest GI. So I felt it had some attributes that other sweeteners didn't have. Plus, it tastes delicious. It's water-soluble. Monsturo de Gila, or Gila Monster barbecue salsa. Again, kind of like Stubbs. Stubbs came in with his amazing marketing concept, yeah. uh, a black cowboy, which really stuck out. And it also was a great barbecue sauce. Same thing for us. We're a Hispanic barbecue sauce on a shelf that, frankly, is mostly Heinz and Hunts. So we're going to bring a, a niche into the mainline barbecue, but also be over around the circuit, so to speak, at, you know, whether it's the butcher over by the butcher or POS or, you know, gift giving, which allows people to experiment with Hispanic food, both, again, with traditional traditional meat and also uh, Hispanic meats that nothing else can give them. Because to be honest with you, most barbecue sauces are the same. You know, this is going to be a different taste and it's going to hit your tongue and you're going to remember it. And we may design it just like Cholula, not to be too hot right now. We might do one of those in the future, but we don't want to scare people away because most people don't have a palate for a really hot sauce but the idea is these have a zinger um the kind that people like right yeah just just enough to make it interesting but not enough i just read about we haven't there's a new pepper or they found a pepper that's even hotter than ghost pepper that's whatever else you want so who who does this who finds this out who tests it that's when i you know i don't want to be that guy well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the Scoville, we're very careful with Scoville because we have to be careful that there's not too much variation in production because you can really, you know, hurt somebody or scare somebody. But we are, we love heritage peppers. And for example, this is really exciting. We are coming out with a hot agave before the end of the year. And it's got a pepper from Guadalajara called Yawalika. Um, it's kind of a variation of a darbal pepper. But it's really unique, and it's only grown in Guadalajara, at least for our supply. So you're not going to find it growing in California, to my knowledge. So again, that's an origin pepper, hot agave, like kind of Mike's Hot Honey, but a different kind of product. Can you imagine it's going to go on pizza? It's going to go on empanadas. It's going to go on lots of Latin foods, but lots of traditional foods. Yeah, no, that could that'd be exciting. That's well, that's yeah. part of the fun. That's part of the fun is uh, getting a new, new sort of exciting taste. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dave, let me ask you real quick, just for benefit of some of the folks that are small, you know, food and, and, and business founders and, and, and team members out there, when or if, if you have a regional product or maybe you even a little pinch in nationally, what is the export market like nowadays for American food and beverages? Well, you know, for us, because we're going to the U.S., we're producing some of this internationally, some of it in the U.S. You know, my recommendation to small companies is, you know, maybe have people come up to your booth at a trade show. It's not that you ignore them, but I would put their card away for the most part and hold it. Make your mistakes here in the U.S. Um, Learn about the market. Don't go too fast, too big, because your supply chain becomes more challenging. For us, because we've been doing it for a long time, yeah, that's one of the benefits of investing in our company is that we're already going international. But for a small company without that international experience, I would stay focused on a, a region to start with in the U.S. Yeah. And you can have a very good, there are lots of people making a great living off regional businesses. Oh, yeah. It, it can be a lifetime. Yeah. 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 You, you, you can do it. So you're still working with both companies, right? Well, I reduce it a lot. I have people that I hire to manage Western Export, an international sales manager. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I am the CEO of both companies. But in terms of day-to-day activity, I'm working with my marketing team and my sales team to, you know, we've got a lot of outside sales. We have brokers. I have a U.S. sales manager, U.S. assistant sales manager. So we already have a team that I'm really managing because we have to move, as you know, pretty smart and pretty fast to get that growth. So along with crowdfunding, we have enough money to scale up. So it needs a lot of attention, whereas Western Export, it's not self-running, but I have other people to manage. Yep. As grow food and beverage brands, efficiencies become important or whatever. You've tried to stay to the production side of authentic and and obviously giving farmers and stuff back more. Is there a, or how big is the challenge? There is a challenge, but how big is that challenge of trying to produce closer to source? And then moving the finished product up as opposed to moving product in bulk and finishing it off here. Well, if you think about, we do the best we can. And so obviously all the coffee, for example, and some of the packing roasting is in Guatemala. For our agave, the agave comes, which is 99% of the product, 100% of the product, basically, all comes from Mexico. And the packaging is all done there, too. In terms of the uh, barbecue salsa, which is multi-ingredient, that's a little bit more complicated. Our origin agreements, ingredients all come from the source. But of course, if you're, and we're actually doing the packaging here in Colorado. For that, you know, you are going to get some products, you know, from local distribution. You have to. It's right. not perfect. Yeah. But, you know, we, we try to do the best we can. With the yeah, exactly. Uh, I think there's a, yeah, there's a huge kind of an impetus at this point for originality, authenticity across more than just food and beverage. But certainly that's always been, it's been a big thing is can you get, you know, can you get things closer to the source, better quality control? And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that just, just works that way. And I know there's some products that are done in Central America, whatever, that are glass, for instance, glass bottle. And that's a commitment because I got to ship glass now from there to Houston or whatever to get it into the U.S. market. But I really don't want to ship it in a huge container load and have it bottled in Del Rio or something. I don't I don't want to do that. It's not the same. And I think for the most part, people, particularly with food and beverage products, are more willing to pay a little extra for that. You know? Completely, especially young people. And and yeah, there's a, a demand for authenticity. And 
Now, particularly in Latin food, like I said, there's so much stuff that has been kind of modified to meet the American palate. And I think people are even tired of that. But that was, you know, I think in the 70s, 80s and 90s, not mentioning any names. But the idea is that people do want authentic stuff, not stuff necessarily made domestically from the same ingredients as everything else. So I'm excited about that trend. And, and again, as you know, our biggest customers so far have been early adapting millennials and Generation Z. How do you work with, on the marketing side, social media, you know, product awareness, obviously a lot of sampling, but the truth is you can only sample so many. How do you get the word out? Well, as you know, because we work with such great brands like Cholula, which is that beautiful bottle, but you can't just rely on the bottle sitting on the on the shelf, right? I mean, that doesn't help people pick it up. So you do have to do tasting. I like to do a lot of merchandising and marketing right at the shelf, like hang tags and things like that. Like, if you don't like this, we'll give you five times your money back was one we used to do at Cholula. We never would get more than a few folks. So, you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek. Um, so, you know, you do a lot. Social media is difficult. I don't think anybody's really nailing that right now. Maybe a few people, maybe the Kardashians, but the rest of us, you know, we don't stand out in this noisy world, even if you got a great product. So social media is hard to rely on, except to maybe drive it to certain websites. I still think you do have to get people to taste it and you have to get their imagination. So, for example, in addition to all the things that are important to us, origin, authenticity, taste healthier for you. That's something that people don't think about with that Hispanic products. But something, you know, I'm from Colorado. I went to school at the University of Colorado Boulder. I believe in, that doesn't mean I'm the only person, but I was trained from my family and my community to be socially responsible. So that's something that's really important to people. And we, for each one of our brands, we have associations for many years with both the supplying country and here. So for example, with Agave, we just sent our team down there last month to work with the Hemadors on a training program. Hemadors are the farmers that actually cut out the pina and they get paid by the pina. So we're sponsoring a training to help them make more money and to create a sustainability around water usage. Here in the States, we support and have supported for many years a gang reformation program out of California. And for our Montserrat de Gia, we're actually supporting an organization uh, around called Operation Barbecue, which is sending barbecue sauce for to feed first responders as they go around to Hawaii uh, or, or Florida for hurricanes. So we want to be profitable. We know that that's super important. At the same time, we want to give back both to the communities where our product is from, but also to the U.S. where our consumers live. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff, David. One, one of the things I wanted to, to make sure... Uh, folks want to find out some more information about the brands and maybe about your fundraising as well. Where where do they go? One idea is just go to our main site, which is origobrands.com, O-R-I-G-O brands.com. Another one, again, if you just type in into your search engine, start engine, S-T-A-R-T engine, just like it sounds, and just type in Origo Brands, it'll go straight to our fundraising site. Um, you can learn about the people and, and the history of our brands and where we're at. Absolutely. And folks, go go look at BISA. That's very important. I really appreciate that. How did, uh, because a little bit of difference in starting brands and within the last, let's just say, 10 years, the direct-to-consumer used to be a nightmare. And it's still a challenge. But being able to do a website, 
being able to get on Amazon, whatever, is a much easier road than it was 10 years ago to do. How did you look at direct-to-consumer and and what are you doing to balance direct-to-consumer versus retail? Well, you know, there's both e-commerce. So we're working with companies like Fair, right, which supply a lot of specialty stores and specialty channel. And obviously we have Shopify on our our own websites. I think that has slowed down a little bit since uh, COVID. You know, during COVID, that was doing really well. I think it's slowed down a little bit. But definitely you have to be on Amazon and you have to be on cool sites like FAIR, which I kind of consider the natural foods, the Amazon natural foods e-commerce site. And again, on our own websites. We don't do a huge volume of business on our own sites. But again, we make the full retail margin. So every day we've got boxes going out and it's building brand and early adopters. And so it has a lot of value to us. There's no doubt about it. I have occasion to ask people about if I get a new product I haven't seen, the first thing I do is ask them, are you on Amazon? And a lot of the responses come back, oh, no, I I can't afford to be on Amazon. Well, well, guess what? Can't afford to be on Amazon. (laughs) You know, you're going to just have a heart attack when you sit down with a distributor the first time because, you know, it's not cheap. But let me tell you, it's cheaper than a lot of things you're going to be doing. I think you have to be on there. I don't think there's a choice. Uh, Even if you don't make a lot of money, it's still just invaluable. Well, even the, I mean, I think back about where you would do spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on focus groups, big companies, on focus groups and right century perception, all that. And and that is, you know, if you mix up a batch of the strawberry vanilla flavor, you can put it on Amazon and you're going to find out in two weeks whether or not you have something that actually is going to work. Because you're going to get all the feedback in the world you need and you're going to see if the numbers are there. You can even look at cannibalization on your line if you want to, which very, very hard to do, you know, uh, again, 10 years ago or so, which is not not the same the same ballpark, you know, work out. Let me ask you real quick, David, about as you go forward and raising the money and trying to prioritize, are you looking to build further distribution or new products, new lines, or a handful of both? I think it's kind of what you were talking about. Growth is a priority right now. You know, I wanted to have three facings uh, on barbecue salsa. We have four facings, but both uh, whole bean and, and ground for coffee. And for Shantico, you know, we have four or five other ancillary products. Like we're the only company in the U.S. that has agave powder in both sachet and, and, and stand-up bag. So those are already developed and are already part of our SKU line. With the barbecue salsa, as I told you, we've done a third variety from Honduras that's going to be available for next barbecue season presentation period, which is January, February. Beyond that, I kind of want to stand back, let people use these, get the sales growth and the profitability, and then put that money back into new ideations of the brands. Yeah, very, very good. Ideas. I, I think we're, we're, we're kind of in an interesting, it's this, and I really want to say post-pandemic because I know that the COVID is still, still out there, but we're sort of coming off this supply chains have kind of you know gone a little bit more back to normal and whatever consumers still seem to be spending we have despite what the fed tries to do we still have a pretty robust economy i mean maybe too robust at this point i don't know the labor situation doesn't seem to ease but interesting to see how consumers especially with food and beverage how many of them go back to buying that particular category or that particular product in a conventional supermarket or whatever versus when they were buying all of it online during the pandemic. 
I think that's a really good question because I don't think people are going to go back like they were to the center of the store. You know, they're going to go around the perimeter. They're going to go for convenience. They're going to go for specialty stores, especially young people. My wife now, she buys most of her product from Amazon and some mix of Whole Foods. She buys something from Whole Foods. And I think she's the same as a lot of people who handle their their household. So, yeah, I don't think it's ever going to go back to the middle. And therefore, you have to create products that go around the perimeter of the store and go into other places like specialty. And, you know, I learned from the best, like, you know, here in Boulder, we had Justin's Nut Butter. Sure. And they went from this jar of almond butter to a little sachet and redefined it as a hundred calorie protein, protein, not peanut butter, protein, peanut butter. Yeah, yeah. put it on your celery, put it on your cracker, whatever, completely redefine nut butter, peanut butter category. That's what I want to do is redefine categories. Absolutely. Well, folks, listen, I want to make sure you get to origobrands.com. Check it out. O-R-I-G-O. B-R-A-N-D-S.com. And I want to thank David for the time he spent with us today. We have a segment, David, which we call Words to Grow By, where we try to elicit from founders and industry experts. It can be a single word, can be a sentence, can be a quote from somebody else. We get a lot of those too, that you would want to share with fellow entrepreneurs on their journey. So you have something for us today? You know, I appreciate the opportunity to share that. I, I, I love poetry and I love philosophy and I do a lot of reading. One of the great quotes I like, a short one by Oscar Wilde, is experience is the name we give to our mistakes. And, you know, we're all going to make mistakes. And that's what gives us the experience to get to the place in our lives that we want to get to. So don't be afraid of making mistakes. Absolutely not. No, we make them every day. We just have to learn from them and deal with them. Very important. Well, again, David, hey, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I know you're busy for sharing your counsel and stuff with us today. And, uh, We'll have you back on the program in a little while when uh, when the brands have grown even more. I appreciate that, Steve. Thank you very much for taking time to talk with me. I appreciate and it. Thanks, everybody else out there for spending time with us today. If you're an emerging brand founder or team member and you're interested in learning and growing from your peers and industry veterans, please check out our podcast archives at nextlevelbrands.com backslash podcast. And that's next, as always, with two X's. I'm Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.